Hey there, listeners. I'm Robin Anir, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's ever-expanding digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Here's what I've got for you this time. It's from page 8 of the Melbourne Argus on 10th of November 1914, under this headline, Boy Incendiarist, Deadwood Dick Reader. At a sitting of the Children's Court at Trentham, a boy 13 years old was charged with having caused the fire which destroyed the Garlicks Lead State School recently. Various witnesses spoke of the boy as being well-behaved and of a good character, it being urged that the principal cause of his lapses was his extensive study of Deadwood Dick literature and the resultant hunger for sensations. Now, I'll bet that anyone who's dipped into Trove newspapers much will have come across something of this sort, laying the blame for criminality, especially among boys, on what was called pernicious literature, or else on picture shows, the gramophone, wireless, comics, TV, CB radio, video games, and on and on up to the present day when I guess viral memes and YouTube pranks are to blame. Deadwood Dick and his ilk, though, were held up as the chief culprits for perhaps three decades or more spanning the turn of the 20th century. They were of the class of literature known here and in England as penny dreadfuls and in the US as dime novels. The names give the genre away. They were cheap and plentiful. Deadwood Dick was often invoked by the papers to stand for all penny dreadfuls and the scourge they represented. Why scourge? Because Dick was a heroic outlaw forever outwitting the law and winning ladies' hearts, and boys couldn't get enough of him. The first Deadwood Dick novel, Deadwood Dick, The Prince of the Road, came out in 1877. It begins with a horseman riding through lonely Custer Gulch, where he spots a poster offering $500 reward for the apprehension and arrest of a notorious young desperado who hails to the name of Deadwood Dick. That horseman is our hero. He was a youth of an age somewhere between 16 and 20, trim and compactly built with a preponderance of muscular development and animal spirits, broad and deep of chest, with square, iron-cast shoulders, limbs small yet like bars of steel, and with a grace of position in the saddle rarely equalled. His form was clothed in a tight-fitting habit of buckskin, which was coloured a jetty black. A broad black hat was slouched over his eyes. He wore a thick black veil over the upper portion of his face, through the eye holes of which there gleamed a pair of orbs of piercing intensity, and his hands, large and knotted, were hidden in a pair of kid gloves. Deadwood Dick, outlaw, road agent and outcast, read the notice. And then a wild, sardonic laugh burst from beneath his mask, a terrible, blood-curdling laugh that made even the powerful animal he bestrode start and prick up its ears. So Deadwood Dick was a road agent. It sounds like someone who'd book you a seat on a stagecoach, but it was, in fact, the American term for a bandit who held up stagecoaches, a bushranger, in other words. You can just imagine how galling it must have been to authority figures when boys revered and emulated figures such as Deadwood Dick in an age when bushrangers still stalked abroad. There are even examples of actual bushrangers who took their inspiration from the likes of Deadwood Dick. 
Charlie Sanger, who haunted the ranges around Castlemaine in central Victoria and is remembered as the last of the bush rangers, he was a voracious reader of Deadwood Dicks. And there was a suggestion that Jimmy Governor, whose story Tom Keneally retold in The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, that he'd stoked himself up with Deadwood Dick novels before setting out on his murderous spree. And there were many more alleged emulators whose deeds fell short of outright notoriety. For instance, two boys, aged 14 and 15 at South Broken Hill, pleaded guilty to a charge of highway robbery in 1897. They'd stolen guns and money, which they blew on lollies and fruit, and the elder of them called himself Captain Dick. The whole business was attributed to excessive indulgence in light literature of the Deadwood Dick description, and the lads were sentenced to a good flogging by their families. In Bunbury, Western Australia in 1903, A young horse thief, when apprehended, was found to have in his pocketbook the covers of two of the type of Deadwood Dick tales which the possessor had presumably been in the habit of devouring. The gaudy coloured prints, said the Bunbury Herald, are calculated to attract the weak-minded. And listener, if you're sure your mind won't snap, you can check out the links at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv, to see examples not just of Deadwood Dick covers, but of others featuring female outlaws like Wild Edna, the girl brigand. Over 30 years or more, the Deadwood Dick franchise ran to dozens of titles, including such gems of alliteration as Deadwood Dick's Drop or The Sojourn at Satan Spring, and Deadwood Dick's Dazzle or The Nemesis of Nutmeg Bonanza, or Deadwood Dick's Desperate Strait or The Demon Doctor of Dixon's Deposit. One of Dick's dime novel rivals was Ballarat Bill, who was denounced in the British House of Commons in 1895 as a gory ruffian who prowls around the famous goldfield near Lake Wenderee, gouging out the eyes of diggers, throwing girls down abandoned shafts and stealing nuggets of gold by the bucketful. A British MP, decrying the enormous and unrestricted sale of Penny Dreadfuls, put the sales of Ballarat Bill novels... I've been able to find just three titles in the series, at 600,000 copies in London alone, surpassing the popularity there of Ned Kelly, the ironclad bushranger of Australia, circulation 350,000 copies, but not yet approaching Deadwood Dick's London sales of a million plus. Some of these cheap publications, which are designed for the amusement of boys and persons but partially educated, said the Catholic Press newspaper in Sydney, glorify crime and make all their heroes lawbreakers. Lads reading about gentlemanly brigands, polished pirates and chivalrous highwaymen find it difficult to believe that there is any crime in taking other people's property. Many a lad who has broken a mother's heart owed his defective moral sense to the cheap sensation fiction which crowds the bookstalls. That was in 1905, and there was worse to come. I mean the picture shows. Motion pictures, originally known by trademark names like cinematographs or biographs, or colloquially as living pictures, had been widely seen in Australia since about 1896. Travelling shows exhibited them in halls and theatres all around the country. But only around 1910 did production, distribution and demand hit critical mass. And I mean it, the effect was explosive. Suddenly in every Australian suburb, Halls and shop fronts were converted into rough-and-ready picture theatres. In the US, they called them Nickelodeons. They ran picture shows daily, matinee and evening, and in some cases all day, continuously. 
In country towns, the shows that had been monthly or fortnightly events were now twice weekly or oftener. A typical Australian picture show would feature between six and ten single reel films. Each reel was a thousand feet long and ran for roughly 15 minutes. Usually the program would be a mixture of comedy, drama, documentary and blood and thunder. That is, cowboys, gangsters and outlaws. Deadwood Dick on celluloid. Can you guess which part of the program was most popular? Needless to say, it became a problem. In next to no time, it was being said in the pulpits, in Parliament and of course in the papers that just one sensational picture has more effect upon children than would their reading of a dozen Deadwood Dick stories. In a panic piece typical of the period from the Melbourne Herald in February 1911, headlined The Cinematograph, Cultivator of Crime, Pictures That Corrupt Children, the writer deplored the alarming growth of crime worship resulting from the spread of, in particular, suburban picture shows. In one suburban district last week, they said, there were three such theatres within a quarter of a mile of each other, and at seven o'clock of an evening, 60% of the audience was under 14 years of age, and children, it is well known, receive impressions for good or evil as readily as warm wax. Here's the journalist's summary of the program at one of the theatres he visited. The first picture was an excellent travel film showing a railway trip through Norway. The second was a ridiculous comic picture portraying a burglar escaping from a policeman. The third was a drink tragedy in which an intoxicated father sent his 10-year-old child out to sell papers and then beat him about the head with an empty beer bottle because he had not sold out. Towards the end of this enlightening episode, the small boy is seen dead on a bed and an angel comes down and takes the murdered boy up through the ceiling. Next came another comic picture in which the alleged humour lay in the pranks of two Scotsmen who played practical jokes with the night bell of a doctor's shop. And then we were treated to an escaped convict story, broad arrows, pistols, faces distorted with villainy. The convict was prevented from stabbing a young girl by hearing the strains of home sweet home ground out of a barrel organ off. Remember these pictures were silent except for musical accompaniment, in this case a barrel organ. Anyway, the Herald piece went on. The effect of the evening's program was that in two short hours, the whole day's work, as regard the moral education of a child, is undone. There is no end to the possibilities of the cinematograph as an educational factor, but the men who buy the films have got the idea into their heads that what the public wants is blood, excitement, sensation, knives, pistols, and all the accessories of the transpontine melodrama. Transpontine? That splendid word meaning from the other side of the ocean, was journalese for American. The cost of admission to suburban cinemas was just threepence. Some suburban theatres would even accept an empty bottle or two in lieu of a coin. Bottles, of course, were worth money then, so that kids would spend half their day going door to door asking for dead marines. During 1911 and 12, surveys conducted by police and magistrates in Sydney and Melbourne bore out the Herald reporter's estimate that up to 60% of the audience at suburban picture shows on any given night, were under 14, and many of them were unaccompanied by parents. Just picture this. As you walk along the street in any populous suburb, said the Australasian, you will see between 7 and 8 p.m. hundreds and hundreds of children, all off to one or other of the picture shows. According to the Herald, the majority of the youthful audience are sent to the theatres by parents only too glad, after a tiring day, to get rid of their offspring for an hour or two 
at a cost of threepence. And here's the Melbourne Argus under the headline, Crime Among Children, Influence of Picture Shows. Children aged from seven years upwards have been seen night after night standing outside picture theatres for the purpose of begging their way inside. It's the general opinion of the police that picture entertainments have made children dissatisfied with home surroundings and created in them a spirit of unrest. People are pestered for money to enable the children to attend the entertainments and it's stated that stealing is often resorted to. In Sydney, it was reported that children classed as uncontrollable before the courts are found to be increasing in number and that the shooting, lynching cowboy as a hero in their minds is clearly demonstrated in almost every street in the suburbs where gangs of boys armed with wooden swords, toy pistols, old knives and other weapons act the irresponsible characters that the shows have brought within their ken. And in Melbourne, every day and night, revolver-using burglars, motor-driving desperados and police-baffling criminals are screened at these picture shows, defying authorities with success. These things are breeding crimes as surely as the Deadwood Dick literature among the young. Included among the reports of copycat crimes were child suicides under headlines like Boy Hangs Himself, Melancholy Result of Visit to Living Picture Exhibition. French dramas were held largely to blame for such occurrences. The awful sorrow that descends upon the world when these dreadful Parisian films are unwinding is a blight from which every good Australian will pray that his children may be delivered. A correspondent to the West Australian lodged a protest at so many illustrations of murder, suicide and hopeless lives in conjunction with music that sometimes is peculiarly weird and uncanny and altogether depressing. Just consider for a moment how fast and how hugely picture shows had burst on the scene. By 1913, there were about 150 picture theatres in New South Wales, 80 of them in the city and suburbs. Audiences ranged from 200 to 2,000 at each showing depending on the venue. In the English industrial city of Liverpool one Saturday, 13,332 children under 14 were counted at picture matinees. The numbers in Australian capital cities must have been at least that. The moving pictures being so new and so epidemic, nobody could say what their long-term effect would be on the rising generation. A writer in Sydney's Sunday Times reflected that Before the advent of the biograph, the morals of the youth of the country could be affected outside the school practically by reading alone. Now, every night of the week, crowds of children at a most impressionable age witness these exhibitions which portray in lifelike fashion every phase of love, passion and hate. Surely the cinematograph must have a wider influence than the daily paper, the public library and the theatre combined. In the Hobart Mercury... A writer pointed out that in plays, the audience not only sees what is done, but hears what is said. His concern was that in silent pictures, the moral of the story might easily be missed. Without words, there cannot be the same reprobation of wrongdoing. The spectator is not told what the punishment is and does not hear the terms in which the virtuous characters describe the villain's misdeeds. A writer in the Riverine Grazier fulminated against the fake pictures. It is manifestly a waste of money and of energy to compulsorily educate the boys and girls of the state in the daytime and then allow them to spend their evenings looking at acted lies of a sensational and harmful kind. And in the Melbourne Argus, an editorial blamed compulsory education for robbing parents of their authority in the first place. 
For 40 years, the state has been steadily relieving parents of more and more of their responsibilities. The children of the 1870s and 80s consequently grew up with a weakened sense of dependence on their parents, and now they are parents themselves, and they show a weakened sense of duty towards their children. Children's craving for picture shows was likened to an addiction. Health experts warned that the growing eye of the child was soft and easily upset. There were even reports of a new disease called motion picture eye. Some feared what young people must get up to for hours in darkened theatres, and of course there were calls for censorship. Germany and Italy had started censoring picture shows as early as 1909 or 10. In Australia, through 1911, 12, 13, the calls for the restriction of picture shows grew louder. Sunday sessions were the first to be curtailed, largely because church attendances and collection plates were suffering. The New South Wales government in mid-1911 prohibited the charging of entrance fees at picture shows on Sundays, and within a short time, the number of Sunday picture shows was down from 30 to just four. The same restrictions dictated that pictures shown on Sundays must be either biblical or scenic in subject, and that the music must be sacred. The World News, a Sydney paper, and admittedly a racy one, demanded to know why should scenic pictures be picked out as specially suitable, unless dullness is presupposed as necessarily just the thing for Sunday evening? Can the acting chief secretary, who had introduced these Sunday regulations, seriously hold that a picture of Kosciuszko or Katoomba or Mullingudgery or Stock and Bingle encourages a devotional frame of mind? The Albury Banner and Wodonga Express facetiously suggested that Sunday picture shows might take the form of total abstinence lectures, varied perhaps with a well-drawn illustration of the diagrams in the first book of Euclid. A newspaper report headed Wicked One Thaggy told how a cleric in that South Gippsland town had thundered against Sabbath desecration not just by the 1300 who attended picture shows, but by women who did their laundry on Sundays. Some local councils in Victoria brought in regulations prohibiting Sunday pictures in the face of considerable opposition. 1,500 people turned out to a boisterous meeting of protest at the South Melbourne Town Hall, and when the mayor asked, what did you do before there were any picture shows? A voice from the floor retorted, we didn't go to church. Bush-ranging pictures, including the 1906 epic The Story of the Kelly Gang, and Moonlight, showing the daring deeds of Captain Scott, alias Moonlight, were fabulously popular and also were widely condemned as a hideous travesty. As early as 1911, the picture industry in New South Wales and Victoria agreed not to show any more bushranger films, a declaration, said the Sunday Sun, which may well puzzle the ordinary non-bushranging Australian person. The writer went on to explain, The action has been taken in view of the general tendency of our Sydney youth to leave more peaceful callings and adopt the professions of the outlaw in the wild forests of Pitt Street and the lonely mountains of Darlinghurst. It is generally understood that bushranging has enormously increased since the films first began to flicker with stories of crime and plunder. Even from a purely nationalistic point of view, the writer thought it a pity that bushranging pictures should be sidelined. He wrote, Only today... A teacher in one of our Sydney schools told me that when boys are asked to draw anything from memory, they invariably produce a recognisable picture of an Indian or a cowboy with a revolver. To make a sketch of a real bushranger of our own early days would be, after all, only to draw Jim or Jack on a good horse. The Ned Kelly film would have a resurgence in 1913, at which time it would be expressly banned by the Victorian Premier. 
In Queensland in 1911, a new Police Offences Bill was introduced to Parliament, which would authorise any police officer above the rank of sergeant to forbid any cinematographic picture show if he is of the opinion that the pictures are of an immoral, degrading or pernicious tendency. And in New South Wales, the Minister for Education, a Mr Beebe, was petitioned by women's organisations to censor films that were exciting to crime or which gave encouragement to vice, showed a tendency to immorality or disrespect to law, order, age or suffering. Mr Beebe seemed to warmly entertain the idea for which he was condemned by The Truth, a newspaper which might itself have been called pernicious, but which positioned itself also as an enemy of hypocrisy. Beebe, said The Truth, appears to have been caught in the widespreading wave of hysterical wowserism. We have been guilty on many occasions of visiting these allegedly degrading entertainments, but we cannot call to mind one occasion upon which we have seen a picture screened which would be calculated to drive even the most impressionable youngster to drink or incite him to go home and murder his parents in their sleep or to strip the family residence of all its portable property and flee to the fastnesses of the bush, there to embark upon a career of bushranging, bloodlust and other atrocities. And the writer went on to suggest that Beebe might place an embargo upon many other things. For instance, Mr Beebe is a member of one of the liveliest parliaments in Australia, wherein the highest code of etiquette is not always observed, and where scenes not infrequently occur, which are afterwards recorded in the daily papers under headlines such as disgraceful scenes in Parliament, riotous conduct of members, larrikinism in the chamber, and so on. This is another place from which the young and innocent should be strictly debarred, that their morals should not become tainted and their purity soiled. Nor should the reports of these proceedings be permitted to invade any citizen's household, for fear the immature members of the family should get hold of them and become so demoralised as to be seized with a burning desire to emulate Mr Beebe and his political brethren in their essentially demoralising exploits. The proprietor of a Geelong picture theatre may have had the truth in mind when he noted that newspaper reports of harrowing murders, of sensational cases in the divorce courts and so on never lack in detail. In fact, he said, if but a fraction of what appeared in even the most respectable press were produced in picture form, I would say, close the picture theatres at once. In any case, in 1912, New South Wales followed Queensland's lead with a regulation that every picture program must be taken before exhibition to the nearest police station, whereupon, if the police officer thinks the film immoral or indecent or sensational, in a way likely to influence young persons badly, the policeman may prevent the exhibition of the films. In defence of picture shows, Adelaide's Daily Herald noted that before the inception of the picture show, juvenile criminality was owing either to the theatre, certain types of Richardsonian melodrama, or to the pages of the Penny Dreadful. Children stole to see circuses before the cinematograph was invented, recalled the Melbourne Age. And as for claims that the authority of police and the law was denigrated by picture shows, the Ovens and Murray Advertiser, from Ned Kelly country in northeastern Victoria, pointed out that from the time Sir Robert Peel instituted the police force, the officious, blundering constable has been the object of harmless fun in the leading comic papers, in the harlequinade of the pantomime, and even in Punch and Judy. And the Melbourne Herald asked, what are the Ned Kelly pictures but a larger edition of the woodcuts in the Sunday school prize books? Kelly is vanquished by the police and hanged? Is that an incentive to crime? 
and in response to concerns about children loitering in the streets at night, the same Herald writer recollected how 20 or 30 years ago boys and girls were often about the streets to just the same extent. Now, if anything, said the Herald, the stream of lads and lasses which flows up and down Burke Street, Bridge Road, Smith Street and other popular thoroughfares is a trifle smaller than it was as part of it flows into the picture theatres. In Bendigo, likewise, an argument against the curtailment of Sunday picture shows was that they lessened the number of girls in the mall. And here, concluded the Herald, is the crux of the position. It is picture shows or the gutter. In fact, by 1913 or so, it was becoming clear that wherever in the world picture shows were flourishing, crime and drunkenness were on the decline, proving that the temptation of public houses could be reduced by the provision of inexpensive counter-attractions. The Western champion out of Barkeldean in Queensland called picture shows one of the best modern inventions ever discovered. Stanley W. Twist agreed. An American picture show man, he arrived in Sydney in 1913 to head up Spencer's Pictures, a local production company. He told the Sunday Times, The real, that is the film reel, the real is bridging distance, breaking down prejudices, bringing once alien peoples closer together, educating the illiterate, amusing the educated, and giving them all much matter for thought. By then, feature films were on the rise, so that picture shows often had a main attraction running an hour or so in length. At the time, pictures were measured in footage, not minutes, and feature films were advertised as a 3,000-foot sensation or a magnificent 4,000-foot film. After the First World War, the dominance of feature films would give rise to a more refined cinema industry, which aimed for the same respectability and sense of occasion as live theatre with blockbuster productions and purpose-built picture palaces built on classical lines. But guess what? The first ever feature film? That would be the 4,000-foot travesty, The Story of the Kelly Gang, made in Melbourne in 1906. A hundred years later, it would be recognised by UNESCO as the world's first full-length narrative feature film. 4,000 feet equaled an hour of viewing, and as the Melbourne Age observed in 1912, Boys will always be found to the very end of time who will cheerfully brave the lash and worse to achieve an open sesame to an hour of spectacular amusement. That same year, there was speculation that modern surgery might soon make it possible to eliminate crime altogether by grafting a piece of a good boy's mind into a bad boy's brain. And who knows? Perhaps that actually happened because 20 years later, the Argus would report that in London, the centenary conference of the British Medical Association had been addressed by a Mr Blackiston, the headmaster of a public school, who offered startling criticisms of the modern boy. And they weren't what you might have expected. Compared with the boy of 30 years ago, said Mr Blackiston, perhaps thinking of his own youthful self, the modern boy is timid, untruthful and dishonest. He expects to be taken everywhere in a motor car and above all fears loneliness and boredom. Consequently, the old spirit of adventure has been destroyed. Moreover, he added, the average boy of 1932 dislikes cricket, thinking it slow. Six months later came body line. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. It's produced by Mrs Bradley, my literary agent, gatekeeper and muse. You can find more episodes of Nothing on TV at iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. 
Why not subscribe and find fresh episodes appearing like magic in your podcast feed? Visit my website, robinanear.com slash nothingontv or just Google Nothing On TV and you'll find pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There you'll also find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources <laughs> that'll help you find what you're looking for on Trove and generally to delve into its marvels for yourself, just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anear. Talk to you next time.